everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I'm really super excited about my guest today, Simone Stolzop. He is an independent journalist and consultant from San Francisco, a former design lead at the global innovation firm IDEO. He regularly works with leaders from the Surgeon General of the United States to the Chief Talent Officer at Google on how to make the workplace more human-centered. But he has a new book out, which I, if you haven't read it yet, you need to pick it up. It's called The Good Enough Job. Welcome to the show, Simone. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. Well, we're going to start this off with a bullish and bearish. It's sort of a tradition. So nothing too painful. Bullish or for it. Bearish or against it. Are you ready? I'm ready. I hope so. All right. The first one, local bookstores, bullish or bearish? I'm bullish on local bookstores. We've seen this interesting trend where even in the age of Amazon and consolidation within the publishing industry, there's actually been an increase in sales from independent and local bookstores recently. And I couldn't be more excited. I think local bookstores make up that social fabric of a city, of a neighborhood. They are the type of mom and pop businesses that it feels good to support with our dollars, and I hope they continue to thrive. Yeah, I said that because you did such a great book tour across local bookstores, and so uh, I figured that that would be uh, close to your heart. All right, yeah. the next one. Dining alone, bullish or bearish? Mm, I love dining alone. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I Just coming off of this bookstore, I've had a lot of time in cities that I'd never been to by myself, and Nothing better than, you know, sitting at the bar, maybe with a book and a glass of wine. And as, as a journalist, I always feel like I am not the expert, but I'm an observer. And I think being by myself at a restaurant really attunes those observation muscles. I get to people watch without judgment. I have to say I agree. When I'm traveling, dining alone is usually the way to, you know, 90% of the time I'm dining alone when I'm on the road and I'm on the road a lot. When I'm home, home, home. It's not the same dining alone. Like then I'm like, then I want to catch up with friends, but when I'm on the road for sure. All right. The last one, AI composed jazz. <laughs> wow. This is like the intersection of many of my Venn diagrams. I'd say um, no. I think there's something inherent in jazz in particular that relies on human touch and improvisation. And I'm not scared of AI in the way that many of the pundits in the media tend to be these days. But I think particularly with something like jazz, where what makes it so inspirational or interesting is the understanding that there are humans doing it in real time often. If it was AI generated, I think it would lose some of its je ne sais quoi. I agree. <laughs> well, as you can tell, I did some background, so I hit on the intersections of what you enjoyed doing. So thank you for playing along on Bullish and Bearish. All right. Well, let's jump in because before we, we, before we sort of dive into the book, I'd love to know what got you to the point that you felt like it was a topic that you needed to put on paper. You know, I'm, I'm often asked, like, why did you decide to write a book? Sort of on the first one. And I swore off I'd ever write a second one. And then lo and behold, I just wrote a second one that just came out. And we were talking before we started recording. You're like, ah, tell, tell me in a year if you, you know, decide you're going to write a third one. And I don't think I have a third one in me. But mm -hmm. I do believe that people want to understand like what finally came together that made you say, I have a book. You know, I have something to say, 60,000 words worth to say. 
What, what got you to that point? Yeah. I mean, the old cliche is that, you know, you write the book that you need to read. And I think that was definitely the case for me. There's sort of like the buttoned up professional answer, which is that I've been a labor journalist for the majority of my career. And I was observing the growing conflation of identity and work in Americans' lives. But the more true answer and the personal answer is that about five years ago, I ended up leaving the newsroom. I was working for a magazine in New York and had the opportunity to join IDEO, which is this design consultancy in the Bay Area. And it threw me for a bit of an existential loop. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever been at a sort of similar career crossroads, but it didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs as much as it felt like I was choosing between two versions of me. There were sort of Simone the journalist and Simone the designer. And I ended up going on the design path, but as a way to keep my muscles from atrophying, I wanted to have a ambitious editorial project to make me continue writing and continue thinking in that way. And so in many ways, it was a, the book is an investigation into how work has come to be so central to our identities and started from me asking myself that same question. And I think it's a super important question. I remember the day I asked myself that question. It was probably 2005 and I was burnt. Like I had been on the hamster wheel, running, running, running in a circle, kind of going nowhere <laughs> fast. And a lot of it had to do with, I didn't know how to work at that pace and kind of a life. So it, it was more of, I just didn't know how to do it. It was the first time I'd ever faced that kind of workload, mm. but I knew I had to get off that merry-go-round. Like I just didn't even sort of recognize myself. Like I was burnt and tired and everything I associated with was work. Yeah. Like that, that was just sort of all of it. And, and I didn't want to get too far away from it, but I knew I had to do something significantly different. Um, yeah, and- it's interesting. I mean, I think like in talking about the book recently, there's obviously sort of like the, the moral case to be made about the value of prioritizing things in our lives other than work, you know, the way in which it makes us more well-rounded people, better neighbors and friends and parents and citizens. But I think there's also the, the business case for it as well. And you know, I think this is particularly relevant to some of what you've been talking about recently in terms of the employee experience and, and thinking about how that trickles down into the success of a business is, you know, if you're on hour 11 of a 12 hour day, you're not firing at all cylinders. You're not doing your best work. And I think a lot of times we have these sort of holdovers from a more industrial age where maybe there was a more direct relationship between the number of hours you put in and the quality of work that you get out. But when the deliverable is a strategy document for an organization or the headline for a marketing campaign or frankly, you know, a book or an article or a piece of writing, there isn't always a direct relationship between how many hours you put in and the quality of the work that you get out. And so I think it's it's vital that people are are thinking about this in a in a critical way, even if they're just thinking about it from a business's bottom line. But it's also this if you go back sort of that historical view, I could work a 12-hour shift, let's just say, right? And I'm not saying that at your 11th hour, I'm talking about, you know, let's call it 50 years ago, right? At your 11th hour, you weren't maybe working at the same quality that you might have been working in hour one or two. Mm-hmm. But you would go home and you would like, you know, eat dinner, go to sleep, wake up, do it again. Yeah. The age of the internet means you may never unplug, Right. And so even if you work a six hour or seven hour day, you know, at the office or eight hour day at the office, especially I've worked from home for 17 years. So the pandemic didn't change it for me. 
but I had difficulty, right? I could see my laptop through the living room into my office and I'd be like, it would call me. Yeah. And when the pandemic hit, I actually took over my garage and made it an office and studio so I could get out of the house. So I could actually have some separation because I wasn't traveling, right? That kind of gave me that separation. Mm-hmm. I no longer had it. And so that whole value of sense of my day was wrapped around work. Yeah. And, and I think what, you know, people who, you know, the saying like, it's not what, what you earn is not going to be on your tombstone. It's sort of the, you know, the lives that you've changed and what you've done. And Mm -hmm. if you're going to spend a third of your life working or 90,000 hours or something like that, I think it is like, find some joy in what it, what you're doing and, and trying to find a way through. So how can people sort of categorize work as one of the elements among many that sort of contribute to their life versus it is the only thing that contributes to their life? Yeah, it's a great question. I think even if you just look at the title of the book, The Good Enough Job, you might think it's this like slacker manifesto or it's like anti-work in some way. And I think what you just said is, is spot on, which is that we work more than we do just about anything else and how we spend those hours matter. So the question becomes, how do you pursue meaningful work without letting work take over your life? And so, you know, one thing that I found is that telling people to care less about their job is not very actionable advice. You know, it's not something that you have a lot to work with there. As opposed to sort of deprioritizing work, what I often advocate for is helping people invest in other facets of who they are. So much as an investor benefits from diversifying the sources of their investments, we too benefit from diversifying the sources of meaning and identity in our lives. And so I think there are sort of two steps. The first is to carve out space in your days and your weeks where working is not an option. You know, part of what you just said, you know, knowledge work is incredibly leaky. If you were working on a Model T on the assembly line, you can't necessarily take that back to your living room and continue to work. But now we carry around offices in our pockets and work can sort of expand like a gas into all of the unoccupied space we allot for it. And so, you know, it might sound simplistic, but if you want to derive meaning in your life from things other than work, you have to do things other than work, which starts with your ability to, to be present in other facets of, of your life. And then the second is just choosing how you want to fill that space. You know, no offense to, to Netflix, but I think so many people sort of get into this mode where they go to work and they come home and maybe take care of parenting responsibilities or what have you. And then all they want to do is turn off their brain and you know, turn on the TV. And, you know, I think if we want to derive meaning or identity or community, it requires time and energy to do so. It, I can't be prescriptive in telling you necessarily what is the identity outside of work that you need to cultivate. Maybe it's you know just your friendships or carving out space to exercise as part of a community that can reinforce an identity that is not tied to your job title or how much you make or Maybe it is just connecting with an interest or hobby, like learning an instrument or learning a new language, not to master it or to monetize it, but just to connect to the inherent joy in, in doing those types of activities. And so I think that's my overarching piece of advice. If we want to diversify our identities, we have to make sure that we are watering these different identities with our time and our attention. Yeah, and I, th- I think that's such a great way to look at it, right? That sort of diversification of the portfolio of your day. 
mm. you know, and, and even carving out 15 minutes in your calendar during your eight hour workday or however long it is, right. And just say like, go for a walk or go talk to somebody or like get up from your desk. You know, my watch says get up all the time, <laughs> like stand up, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so now I use the stand up as a hold on, not only stand up, but stand up, get outside, right? Get a little sun, sit outside for five minutes, come back in. Like it's just rejuvenating, hmm. but you have to be committed. And so what, what, you know, within the book, I know you did hundreds of interviews and I know you've been on this book tour, so you've probably answered this question, but what was something that was really surprising from hmm. those interviews that you weren't expecting? And then what was something that you were expecting that actually didn't sort of come to fruition? Great questions. You know, so the form of the book is each chapter follows a different worker in a different industry. So there's a Michelin star chef and there's a Wall Street banker and there's a software engineer at Google who lives in a box truck in the Google parking lot. And you know, I think I'll, I'll tell one of the stories, which is that of the, the Wall Street banker, because I think it's in many ways the most cliche story in the book. It's Someone who grew up in sort of lower middle class upbringing in New York City was the valedictorian of his high school, sort of a type A, ambitious type, went to an Ivy League college, thought about the different potential career options for him and said, okay, I could be a, a lawyer, a banker, an engineer, or I could be a doctor. And he decided to go into finance, go into Wall Street. This was sort of the late 90s. Silicon Valley hadn't really grown into its full sex appeal yet. And he went to work for BlackRock, one of the, the largest asset management companies in the world, quickly rose the ranks, bought his first New York City apartment before he turned 30, was making seven figures. And he was preparing to go to a, a friend's wedding in New York. He was about 35 at the time. And he looked into the mirror and a piece of his hair had fallen out. And he later found out it was related to kind of stress-related alopecia. And he had all of the, what David Brooks calls resume virtues in the world. You know, he had achieved all of the on-paper success that anyone might aspire to. But he was playing a game that he didn't actually want to win. He was, you know, climbing a career ladder that he didn't want to be on. It took his hair falling out for him to, to recognize it. And so, you know, I think this this is what I expected. He, This guy, Kay, who I profile, sort of represents the extreme of just making decisions based on what the world values or what the market values without considering what he himself values. But I think what was surprising was, you know, I went and spent time with him. You know, long story short, he kind of leaves New York, moves to California. You know, the cliche continues, becomes a, a surfer. And I think, you know, what I realized with spending time with him is the other end of the spectrum presents its own side of risks as well. If you are just making decisions based on what you yourself value without consulting what the world values, that can be a, a trap as well. And it might put you in a position where, for example, you assume a lot of student debt to go to graduate school to pursue a degree that might not have job prospects on the other end, or you go all in to pursue art, but you are so preoccupied with how you're going to pay your bills that you can't actually focus on the art that you hope to create. And so I think, you know, what surprised me is I thought it was going to be sort of like a takedown of this like track-oriented Wall Street lifestyle of just trying to go up and to the right and get more and more and more. But uh, through the reporting process, I realized that it's more of a balancing act. You know, we hold what the world values in one hand, what we value in the other hand. 
And I think the healthiest, most sustainable careers sort of sit at their intersection. It's holding both of those things in concert. In terms of like what I thought would be true, that didn't end up being the case. You know, I think coming into the book, I had a lot more of a uh, of a hot take. You know, the sort of this idea that you know our whole world and lives are centered around work, and this is to our own detriment and the detriment of our society. And I think over the course of you know three years, my hot take tempered into something a little bit more mild. You know, it's not about following your passion or not following your passion or being pro work or being anti work. It's about that question that we mentioned earlier, you know, how do we balance the pursuit of meaningful work without letting our work take over our lives? And so maybe not as extreme of a, of a flip, but going from something that was a little bit more polarizing. I think in the work world in particular, there's this inclination to either you know, villainize or lionize our jobs. And on the other side, I think the book is much more about a, a middle path. And I think often this sort of work-life balance gets this big debate. Is it just unattainable, ridiculous? Is it attainable? And I'm, I'm more of a believer like you where I, I don't know if it's ever balanced always, <laughs> but I think when you start to notice before the hair falls out <laughs> that you're mm-hmm. out of balance, yeah. that you have to inject those things that bring you joy that aren't work-related, right? Mm-hmm. And there was I was reading something the other day and I don't remember the source of it, so... I can't, I can't tell you the listeners where it was, but it was something about in America, we leverage vacation days the least mm-hmm. like, right. And I happen to work for a company where at certain levels in the organization, it's unlimited vacation days, which of which I don't know how many I've taken this year, even though unlimited, right? Like you just, it's yeah. like, that's not helpful. Like I don't take them. I, I take them sporadically. I should really take a couple weeks all in one block. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we don't take the time because we feel like it's going to impact our ability in our work, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not there. I won't be considered. I'm not part of this or, you know, and there's been a lot written about, you know, entrepreneurs, like be able to leave your business and will it keep going? Like if you went on vacation for a week, would your business still make, maintain itself? If you run a team and you went on vacation, would the team continue to work? If you run a division, like the, the world will not end. But yet our perception is it, it can't happen and it won't work without me. Like yeah. I am the center. Totally. And, you know, not to bring this into the, the AI conversation that seems to be everywhere these days, but I think in an age of increased automation, it becomes that much more important that we're sourcing inspiration, that we're finding ways to, to cultivate interests and hobbies outside of work. And, you know, the research backs this up. It shows that people with what they call greater self complexity. People who have cultivated different sides of themselves tend to be more resilient in the face of adversity. You know, this makes sense. If you're rising and falling based on your professional accomplishments alone and your boss says something disparaging or you have a bad day at work, it can very easily spill over into all the other facets of your life. And the research also shows that people that have more varied interests and hobbies tend to be more innovative, tend to be more creative problem solvers. And so in an age where, you know, machines or technology are making the sort of production of work costs go down to zero, what becomes more important is our tastes, is how we are able to find inspiration outside of just the narrow lane that we are in during our work days, how we're able to reset and give 
our brain's room for ideas to bounce around and to synthesize all of these inputs that we're taking in. And so I think this is only going to be increasingly so. And I foresee that in the future, companies might start to compete with each other to be perceived as the most work-life balanced in the same way that they might compete today to be seen as the most mission-driven. I think it's going to be a, a vital part of, of business and personal fulfillment moving forward. What's your take on, because this is a lot, I'm guessing, right? This is a lot, or I'm assuming I should say, that this is a lot about that, to your point of the example of the Wall Street banker. It's sort of, I have a goal, I'm going for that goal, whatever that goal is, right? I want to run my own business. I want to run my own division. I want to be a VP. I want to be a whatever, right? Whatever that goal, quote unquote, is. And, and it could even be, you know, I want to be the best teacher or, you know, it doesn't have to be in, in the business world. But what happens when you don't reach your goals? Mm -hmm. And what does it do to this cycle of if I align myself to my worth, right? Being work-related and the goals give me that satisfaction, right? Yeah. When I achieve them and I'm so aligned to who I am with what I do and then I don't achieve my goal. Anything in the stories there that you can- Yeah, or you, know, you get laid off or furloughed and if your whole identity and sense of self-worth is tied up in your professional life, then- it can send you for an existential loop. I mean, I think you know your question cuts to the heart of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. And you know, I think there's nothing wrong with having these goals or trying to aspire to have some you know alphabet soup of letters after your name or some job title or to earn a certain wage. But the research says that you know intrinsic motivation, when you are motivated by the sheer act of actually doing the activity at hand as opposed to what it might get you, is a much more sustainable fuel source. You know, we all have a mix of intrinsic and intrinsic motivators, but if you're solely motivated by achieving those goals, you can spend your whole life chasing carrots without actually feeling full. And so I think the, the balance there is to make sure that the goals that you are chasing are, in fact, your own. And that's what I like about this framework of sort of the good enough job is it's, it's subjective. You know, you get to choose what good enough means to you. Maybe for one person, a good enough job is a job that pays a certain wage or has a certain job title or allows them to have a certain impact in their work. For someone else, maybe it's a job that gets off at a certain hour so they can pick up their kids from elementary school. You know, we all get to choose what good enough means to you. But I think the key part is that you are actively choosing because if not, your employer will happily define your relationship to work for you. Well, and I, you know, I've been saying lately, as you mentioned that, that in my book, I talk a lot about employee experience and, you know, I make the statement that the fastest way to get customers to love your brand is to get employees to love their job. And when I started saying that, um, I'm not the first to say something like that, but that that's sort of the statement. I would get a lot of pushback from executives of like, like, how do I measure love your job? Like mm -hmm. joy. I'm not here to make people joyful. Like mm -hmm. I need them to do their job. And you make a statement that work won't love you back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, so if you love what you do, like if, if your employees love the job, it's not because work's going to love you back. <laughs> Like, yeah. it's like, literally, I love what I do. Like, I don't know how you feel about what you do, but I love what I get to do every day. Like, it brings me a lot of joy. It's challenging. It stretches me. When the pandemic hit, I actually had a identity crisis, right? Because I wasn't traveling. I wasn't seeing people. I wasn't having these conversations that really sort of fuel me that I learn. And it, 
I, I'm curious and I'm asking lots of questions and I had to like reframe, how do I replicate that feeling over camera, you know, over a Zoom call or a Hangouts or whatever it might be. But that one statement, work won't love you back, is really powerful to me. How did you land on that? And, and when you say that to people, what, what's their reaction? Yeah, well, I first want to give credit to Sarah Jaffe, who is one of the kind of OG labor journalists who wrote a book by that title, Work Won't Love You Back. And, you know, I think it's a lesson that many people, especially in the tech industry, have learned firsthand recently, you know, especially companies in Silicon Valley that have sort of champion this idea of the all-inclusive office campus and the sort of workplace that can be your social hub and your go-to dinner spot and your gym and a place where you can go change the world or do the best work in your life. I think the pandemic was a, a rude awakening for many people that understood that actually at the end of the day, it's still a transactional relationship. You know, companies hire people when they add value and, and fire people when they don't. And I think the more clear-headed we can be about that, the better. You know, I think the other end of the spectrum where you're not engaged, the sort of more nihilist point of view around work is not a recipe for fulfillment either. You know, I think we all know that the days where we felt less engaged with the work that we're doing are some of the hardest days to get through. But being clear-headed about the idea that a business relationship, a job, is it's an economic contract, you know, and businesses have material goals and unfortunately their loyalty to their bottom line and their investors will almost always trump their loyalty to their people. And so, you know, care about your job, find work that is important, find work that is meaningful, but make sure that it's not the only aspect of your life that you're investing in because it might not always be there. Yeah, and I think when you say things like that, and, and I have conversations, it's sort of this interesting line to be walked because some people, like, let's just use the term quiet quitting, um, which I'm not necessarily a fan of, but at least everybody understands what, what it means. But some people don't have the option. Like, I may not be happy at work, but I have to put food on the table. Yeah. So, like, I just have to keep doing what I'm doing until I have the energy to potentially go find something else. It's very different than you know, I'm quiet quitting because I've got money in the bank and I'm just going to start looking for something else. You know, I have a little bit more options. Three may be, you know, maybe I don't have the skills or the education to do what I really want to do. And so I'm just doing what I have to do to buy my time till I can figure out a way to go do what brings me joy or that, you know, really fulfills that bucket, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a massive part of my life. But are there things you can give sort of one, two, three, you know, as we begin to wrap this up that if, any of our listeners are feeling like they're overcommitted to work and they don't have enough in their personal life to bring more balance or they're doing something they just really find no joy in yeah. <laughs> like at all, you know, or even the third would be that they want to like what you did, right? You left a design job, but you found a way to continue to sort of have your finger in that, you know, while you pursued other things. I, I think there's multiple ways to get to, to the goal here. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd advise people to, to start small. You know, diversifying your identity doesn't need to be some grand gesture. You know, I think especially with people that tend to be ambitious. I remember talking to this psychologist for the book and she says, you know, I, I work with all of these sort of go-getter overachievers. And so when I ask them to like invest in another side of themselves, they say, okay, I'm going to sign up for an Ironman or I'm going to read 52 books this year, you know, and I think in actuality, these these little bids, these little investments that we can make in the different facets of who we are, 
can can be small. It can be, you know, a weekly phone conversation with your best friend to invest in that relationship. It can be finding a community. Like, for example, I like to play pickup basketball. I think one of the nice things about pickup basketball is like people could care less about what I do for work. You know, it's a, it's a community that reinforces another side of myself and my values and judged on how I did in my last performance review or how many sales I made that week. It's judged on whether I box out when I rebound or I'm a good passer or I show up on time. And so I think that's another piece of advice I'd give to people is try and find communities that reinforce these other identities. Because certainly we're all more than just workers. We are neighbors and friends and parents and travelers and citizens and artists. And each of these identities will grow in proportion with how much time and attention you give to them. Well, Simone, this has been so great. Uh, how can people keep in touch with you? I know you've got a course, but you know how can people sign up for that? And uh, obviously, please go pick up a copy of his book. It's been out now eight or 10 weeks, so a couple months. The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. But how else can they keep in touch with you? Yeah, the easiest way is just to go to thegoodenoughjob.com. You can find all my socials there. I have an email newsletter. I have a course. But thanks so much for having me on, Tiffany. And it's nice to uh, meet another author and, and fighter of the good fight. Well, thank you so much for coming. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, leave some feedback, tell your friends. And I'll look forward to having you join me the next time. Have a great rest of your day. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye.